This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of the channel, and today I'll be talking with my guest, Dr. Erica Marat, about her book, The Politics of Police Reform, Society Against State in Post-Soviet Countries, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Dr. Marat is an associate professor and the chair of Regional and Analytical Studies Department at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. Her research focuses on violence, mobilization, and security institutions in Eurasia, India, and Mexico. She's the author of three books, most recently, The Politics of Police Reform, which we'll be discussing today. She also has several articles published in Foreign Affairs, Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Eurasian Net, and Open Democracy. Erica, thanks for joining us today, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm so delighted. I'm excited, too, and I think we'll have a lot to talk about today. Um, and just kind of as an introduction in, into your book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your research background and how you came to work on this project which seems uh, very relevant in 2020. Sure. Um, so I was born in Kyrgyzstan. I was born and raised in Kyrgyzstan. And one of the reasons why I was so interested in policing and the institution of policing is um, because while growing up in Kyrgyzstan in the 90s, after the end of the Soviet regime, when lots of um, government public systems collapsed, you know, was... Uh, schools not functioning, public transport not being reliable, even utilities. I remember we didn't have, you know, things like electricity or water on a regular basis. I saw that the police were had a constant presence on the street. And from time to time, I also noticed violent interactions between the police and ordinary citizens. So I always wondered, how is it that when everything else is in decline and uh, not reliable, we always see the presence of police on the streets of Bishkek, my hometown, and that uh, not only that, but they also are quite violent and um, in that sense, unchecked by the society. They, they, they can behave in the way they seems like they want to behave. So um, that's how I came to the idea of researching uh, police as an institution. Um, and not only in Kyrgyzstan, but the more I learned about Kyrgyzstan, the more I saw that there are parallels of how police function in other former Soviet states. And there is this common Soviet legacy that countries that I research, Ukraine, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, share as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, I mean, the narrative you're telling about policing um, seems really familiar to me. I know that there, like in the United States right now, there are a lot of conversations going on about how, why are the 
budgets of police departments um, still so stable when, when other services seem to be faltering? And obviously, it's not a direct one-to-one comparison, but I, I find that similarity striking, and maybe we can talk about that later in the interview. Um, but I wanted to come back to this point you made um, just now about um, kind of the legacy of, of Soviet policing and um, specifically how that relates to the the countries you chose for your case study. Um, So you look at Georgia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan, um, Tajikistan, and Kazakhstan to some extent. Um, Why specifically these countries of the former Soviet Union? And and also, what what is the legacy of policing um, that these these former Soviet countries have kind of inherited uh, from the Soviet Union? So all post-Soviet countries inherited a similar type of police forces. Um, police force uh, forces were uh, highly politicized, so were, uh, they function in support of whoever is in power, and that's unlike the Soviet military or post-Soviet military for that for that matter. Um, centralized in control, so under interior minister, but decentralized in their um, reach, um, controlling all parts of uh, former Soviet space, and also one of the bigger legacies of um, Soviet policing was that police performed a wide range of uh, functions that didn't necessarily have to do with public security, public order, but um, things like issuing ID, performing surveillance, um, um, you know, even engaging in uh, law enforcement education and public schools. So they really have they really have um, broad reach and uh, a, cent- a prominent. They played a prominent part in the Soviet regime, and they continue to play the same prominent part in uh, post-Soviet uh, kind of reality as well. And the reason I was interested in Kyrgyzstan, Georgia, and Ukraine is because even though we saw uh, democratization in those countries and um, competitive elections in which political uh, leaders like Saakashvili or Yushchenko um, or in Kyrgyzstan like um, Azimbek, uh, sorry, Almazbek um, Atambayev uh, won elections. They, even though they wanted to reform police forces, and they indeed uh, declared their ambitious intentions, uh, and Saakashvili is the most notorious one, of course, um, the police still remained politicized and well-funded and uh, opaque institution. And um, po- political incumbents, uh, to a lesser degree in Georgia, of course, but uh, very much so in Kyrgyzstan and Ukraine, they can, even the democratically elected political incumbents, they continued to rely on uh, the political loyalty of the police forces. So my question really um, in the book that I ask is, what does it take to uh, reform a post-Soviet police force? Or, you know, what does it take to undo those Soviet legacies of uh, politicized and militarized police? Yeah, and I, I definitely want to tackle this question um, because I think you, you give some concrete answers, which I, th- I think will be very interesting for our listeners. But I wanted to ask one more question about um, these kind of different case studies and um, kind of the, the, I don't know, the weight of, I guess, 
I want to ask about the weight of uh, that Soviet legacy of policing and whether or not there are divergent experiences among these different countries. Um, I know, for instance, in, in one section of the book, you talk about how uh, broken windows policing, which comes from New York City, actually, um, played a major role in some in, in policing in post-Soviet Kazakhstan. But I'm wondering if there are other examples. Um, you mentioned Georgia and Ukraine. Are these outliers? Do we see kind of divergent um, tracks in terms of um, how policing uh, develops in these different post-Soviet countries? Or is there a kind of uniformity among so the major uniformity among all former Soviet states that I study, but also, you know, I can see parallels here in the United States as well, is that when police and political leaders announce ambitious police reforms and um, they do it, um, you know, publicly and they want to change, it's not going to happen unless there is a wide and broad participation from non-state actors, from civil society groups. And um, the conclusion is that police are not going to reform themselves, um, in, uh, especially with uh, the legacies that uh, the countries that I study inherited um, after the collapse of the Soviet regime. Police are not going to give away their power over the society um, just like that. And um, in the former Soviet space, just like in most parts of the world, police are also extremely corrupt and they're able to use their monopoly over the um, over violence. So, you know, the legal ability to arrest people, to, um, to use violence against people, um, they're able to leverage that um, and take bribes, extract bribes from the population. And of course, you know, there is a discussion that people are also willing to pay bribes uh, when they break law so that they avoid the legal system. But the point I'm trying to make is the police are not going to reform themselves. Even political leaders who, who come to power will not reform police. There has to be a push from push bottom up from citizens, act, activists, uh, opposition political leaders, uh, journalists, and uh, here in the United States, there are prominent NGOs or um, activist movements that will demand that the police open up, uh, use less violence, become more uh, responsive to citizens' needs um, in what in what the citizens uh, require for public order, and not what the state imagines it to be for policing. So yeah, this is the this is the takeaway that the police are not going to reform themselves, um, and um, all those ambitious reforms um, they are just a way of presenting very often presenting what I call um, in some places refurbishment of police refurbishment you know meaning buying new guns new uniforms or coming up with techniques like broken windows policing that was completely. Um, you know, really criticized here in the U.S., but somehow took took root and became popular in other parts of the world. So, um, you know, top-down police reform is likely to be boosting the powers of the police, not giving away powers of the police. Yeah, and I think that's an important uh, reading of that. I mean, it it, it seems highly skeptical of, of um, calls to reform, but 
Um, there seems to be a healthy skepticism there. Um, and I want to come back to this main question that you seek to answer in the book, um, because you've alluded to some of the um, kind of variables you see as being important for for meaningful reform of police. And, and one of them you've mentioned as kind of NGOs, um, kind of putting pre- being able to organize and put pressure on authorities. And you, I think you call this pre-existing dissent infrastructure. So um, I guess in addition to that, you mention um, transformative violence and also um, a focus on state society collaboration and, and renegotiating um, I guess what it means to police. Um, but the, these are the three variables that you come up and I was hoping we could go through each one and kind of provide some examples of um, when, when these variables uh, resulted in, in actual reform of the police and, and how that operated. So what do you mean by transformative violence as kind of the starting right. voice of police reform? Right. Um, so transformative violence um, is the type of violence that really mobilizes the public to act. And uh, police may be a violent institution and certain groups or all of the societies suffer from their um, violent means of dealing with citizens but there is one violent event, event that will spark this outrage and it will be a tipping point for people to mobilize against um, this violence. And um, in, uh, in Eurasia or in former Soviet space, what I find is that these kind of requests, the mobilization, the public mobilization against police brutality took place um, in response to transformative violence. And also, um, usually this, it happened during, um, you know, when, when people convened for other political reasons, but then the police attacked them, and then the people switched just from uh, opposing political issue to just opposing the coercive functions of the state. And that's when you uh, we see various uh, civil society networks joining forces or becoming more loud and demanding reform and in um, channeling what most people in the society feel about about the police. And for that, we do need to have so in in countries like again Ukraine, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, we did have this pre-existing dissent infrastructure. This is this is a term I borrow from mobilization literature about um, the basically the infrastructure of civil society groups, uh, and it doesn't have to be just uh, organized in you know NGOs or um, whatever other you know collectives, uh, civic collectives. It can be individual activists uh, who can be really effective. It can be journalists. Very often the, um, it is former um, police officers who just couldn't change things from inside, but got so disgruntled they left the interior ministry, so want to change it from outside as civil society members. Um, it's, it, may, it can be former inmates. And um, together, well, we see that those networks and individuals, they come, uh, they mobilize their forces and they start demand uh, change. So there has to be, unfortunately, the conclusion I make is that there has to be this one transformative moment that really 
um, really sparks public outrage so that both interior ministries and political leadership feel like there is no other way but actually open up to demands from 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 below and um yeah so we see this happen again and again in the former soviet space uh we see this happen here in the united states uh this summer was the uh, murder of uh, george floyd um, as we speak now, similar protests are happening in Nigeria against a specific case of um, police brutality. And that's basically, again, people saying enough is enough. And this is when most changes can actually take place within policing um, as, an, as an institution, as in a practice, as a practice. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and I... I in just a little bit, I do want to actually dive more into what's happening in the United States because I think um, it it raises some interesting questions about about the ability to compare these two cases, and um, you know I have some questions about what you think the future of of Black Lives Matter and and the call for reforming or even abolishing police in the United States uh, will look like. Um, and whether or not we can call what's happening a success or not. I mean, there are so many questions um, about what happened this past summer that um, I think some of your insights might be able to um, illuminate. So this brings us back to the, the third point I want to talk about, um, in or the third aspect of your answer uh, to this this big question that you're asking about what what can we what what needs to happen in order for the police to be successfully reformed? And you mentioned state society collaboration. And I think uh, when you were talking about this, you, you're talking about um, reimagination of of the relationship between uh, police violence or police use of violence um, and the way that they relate to society. Um, but I was hoping you could elaborate on that a little bit further. Yes. Thank you for bringing this issue back again, because it is one of the central parts of the book that um, I, the way I define uh, the very notion of police reform, it's not really, you know, buying new guns, new uniforms, new cars, or even new uh, techniques that police use to bring public order, but it really is this ongoing um, collaboration and consensus, search for consensus between society and the police. Because this is the understanding uh, of what the society needs from the police constantly changes as uh, we identify new social problems, we become more tolerant to certain behaviors, let's say, you know, uh, use of marijuana, 
or um, or you know the majority of society you know anywhere in the world become more tolerant of sexual minorities. So and then the understanding of what police need to do constantly changes in the society, and the negotiation of how the police should take place is the very essence of the ch- of change and uh, of uh, by definition of reform as well. And this uh, state-society collaboration is likely to take place again in the aftermath of transformative violent events, when uh, both interior ministries and state political leadership feel like um, it's really uh, it's going to cost them a lot if they don't open up to an to input from uh, non-state actors. And um, this kind of Collaboration did take place in post-Soviet countries, in Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and um, in Ukraine. There were even attempts for this kind of collaboration, for the push, you know, from of the bottom-up perspective, in more autocratic countries like Kazakhstan and Tajikistan. However, um, initial opening to these ideas quickly followed by um, those windows of opportunities shutting down when uh, interior ministries and political leaders felt like the general public interest in police reform is declining, even though civil society is still active. Um, And that's when um, the police reforms become, again, those top-down ventures, unfortunately, in form of Soviet space. But that's not to say that some progress has been made in all of these countries in bringing um, bottom-up perspective on um, how police need to function. And I have to tell you that, I mean, I have to be very clear about this, that police reform and this kind of state society collaboration, it always, almost always brings to um, less violence or use of, uh, you know, lesser violence by the police uh, against against the public. Um, The public demands that uh, the police are less punitive, but more collaborative. Uh, they're they're more understanding. They're more there to patrol, um, as opposed to punish small um, disorderly behavior or criminal behavior. And I think this kind of illuminates another point you were trying to make in the book, um, specifically by looking at kind of, um, I, I guess looking at like the cyclical nature of of these interactions right you sort of come to the conclusion that um this has to be a constant battle right like that that the public has to be constantly engaged with limiting the the power of police institutions to to regain that sense of authority that allows them to commit uh these kind of more um radical acts of violence against people is yeah um which to me seems like a a a really i don't know like a pessimistic way of um (laughs) looking at at this question so um yeah i mean i guess my question is is how 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 did you come to this conclusion and are you looking at what kind of time span are you looking at when you think about the cyclical nature of Mm -hmm. these um these different cases of, of um, this kind of peak moment uh, around the transformative violence and, and the call for demand uh, to transform policing and then kind of um, 
that energy kind of seems to fade out over time. I mean, what kind mm-hmm. of timeline are we looking at? Do you see any similarities across these different cases in Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan? So, yes, it is a cyclical nature uh, because there are, you know, there, there are violent events that spark civil society to uh, get together, to mobilize civil society, and then the state opens up. And then, and then for a while, um, nothing happens. So not, you know, by definition, not all violent events can be transformative. So it's just some of them are. Um, and um, yeah, it is a cyclical nature. I, I, I think it is uh, it's just to the point, it just kind of confirms that the, um, the notion that uh, police reform is a never ending process. There is no such thing as, okay, here we are, we arrived at a great policing, uh, police and policing techniques, and that's it, we're not going to change anymore. Police or uh, police officers are the type of bureaucrats that everyday citizens or, or citizens interact with in, most frequently in everyday life. So the com- this is really a very complicated relationship. And in terms of um, cycles and their duration, they tend to be fairly quick um, between, you know, when the, there is a window of opportunity opens up for civil society to make an, an, an impact, and then when interior ministers shut down opportunities for, for bottom-up um, influence. You know, a couple of years at, at, at most, uh, but there have been, in all the three countries um, that have seen democratic openings. There have been several opportunities like that. And each time some of the changes, you know, for instance, accountability mechanisms that were installed over interior ministry. So they were, some of them were rolled back, but some of them stayed. And this, this, those, um, the things that stick, they really do stick and they do amount to gradual cultural shift over time. And it's really, you know, I don't think it's possible to undo everything in the police, you know, within a short span of time. Not, even in Georgia, I don't think that happened. Um, you know, it's a different case and it uh, requires more discussion, I think. But um, in former Soviet space, it's usually a matter of a couple of years. I think in uh, Western countries where you have more um, established venues for civil society or society and state collaboration, like, for instance, courts or um, elected officials, uh, NGOs, prominent NGOs, then um, that's, those cycles take much longer time. And, for instance, uh, again, I keep repeating, I, I keep coming back to the U.S. context uh, because it really helps illustrate uh, some of the points. But, for instance, in the 80s, there was a lot of discussion on how to police domestic violence and that policing changed in the 90s there were a lot of discussions how how to police uh, lgbt groups or lgb uh, L, um, lgb groups you know not so much the t aspect unfortunately in the 90s and then in 2000s the muslims and then i think 2010s uh starting with uh trayvon martin and now until george floyd a lot of attention now is you know the cycle now of a public discussion and state society collaboration is focused on how do we police uh, black men and women in the United States. Sure. Um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about the U.S. case because I think maybe it can illuminate. I mean, I think people will find this interesting, but it, I think it can also illuminate some of the 
things that we're trying to get at. So I'm curious um, how, you know, this is not a post-Soviet space that we're talking about, um, but I'm curious how this model of transformative violence, pre-existing dissent infrastructure and state society collaboration, like, can tell us something about, or maybe not, or, you know, or maybe it falls short of telling us something about the way it operates in the United States, because it seems like we've had so many of these transformative moments when, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there are, there are moments when this kind of violence happens and, um, the media hardly picks it up, but then there are times when, um, it does seem to become a, a kind of moment of transformation. I mean, we could go back to the Rodney King riots. We could talk about, um, you know, the the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson. We can talk about George Floyd and the, and also the murder of Breonna Taylor this summer. Um, but still, it feels like things are changing, but at the same time, um, not quickly enough. Um, and so, you know, we see these calls for police reform that were pretty intense over the summer and, and arguably have have kind of disappeared to some extent. Um, and I'm curious if, if the, your, your studies, um, in these various post-Soviet countries can tell us anything about why that might be the case. I can see how, um, my approach to transformative violence can't really, um, explain all types of mobilization. And here in the United States, um, I thought Trayvon Martin was the transformative moment. Of course, you know, a couple of decades ago, we we saw same happen with Rodney King. Um, then I thought Michael Brown was that tipping point. But then there were a whole series of uh, similar shootings and uh, killings by the police. Um, and now with George Floyd, I think that um, I think that Rodney King was definitely you know one of those moments um, of. Um, mobilization of networks. And then uh, with the killing of uh, Trayvon Martin and then in a quick succession with um, Michael Brown, it was really, uh, that's when civil society networks consolidated and Black Lives Matter as a movement emerged and kind of made it a national issue. And since then, um, since then the discussion continues. So for me, really those moments of, um, beginning of change were really in uh, 2012, 2014 was Trayvon and uh, Michael uh, Brown. And uh, that's when the, those pre-existing dissent infrastructures uh, started really consolidating, expanding. So because the activists were there all the way, you know, uh, civic activists, um, but they really entered the national scene and started demanding change. and. Um, yeah, and it's very important uh, that there is, and I, I mentioned that in the book, that there is a visual communication of what happens, uh, of the type of violence that happens. Uh, there has to be a depiction, a visual depiction. And, you know, this is explained in other theories and communication theories as well, that uh, images, compelling images really can mobilize feelings. They invoke uh, emotions, a sense of urgency, and they prompt people to act. Um and the I, the frustration was that it continues to happen and it's very slow. I get it. I under, in this this is the same with um, the former Soviet space, but this frustration is um, also 
there. You know, because the changing police, undoing the police really takes time. It's not an overnight thing. It's not going to happen. Uh, you can't undo uh, decades of punitive policing just uh, within a couple of years. But the changes are taking place, I think. The changes are taking place. And maybe it will take another, I don't know, a decade or two before we can actually talk about progress. And it's, it's very frustrating, I know, um, especially in this country. But um, this is just how a slow pol policing is undone, unfortunately, or especially punitive policing, violent policing is undone. And I want to come back to this idea about um, about about I guess the the abuse um, of the police, the the, the mi misuse of violence by police, um, the need for that to be visible uh, as as a precursor to change. Because I think this comes up in in the two cases in the book um, where we don't see uh, you know positive reform of the police, which is in Tajikistan and Kazakhstan. And I, I gathered the sense that this, this had, maybe especially in the case of Tajikistan, that this had something to do with um, urban versus rural mm -hmm. um, police yeah. violence, which is, a, I think, a concept a bit foreign to, at least it seems to me, a bit foreign to the United States, but um, seems to have more applicability in Central Asia. So I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think um, it is applicable in former Soviet space, but it's also applicable in many other parts of the world. Um, it's just, um, in, if something happens in urban areas, first of all, it's more likely that uh, we will have both uh, the imagery, the vivid, vivid image, images, but also coverage of the story. And also we will have um, urban mostly middle-class activi activists and, and the public who will be uh, mobilizing against, um, against the government, against the police. It's just that in urban areas in former Soviet space, but maybe also across uh, many other countries, in urban areas, there is a higher density of political life, of discourse, activism, the networks are denser, uh, political participation is more prominent so that those uh, pre-existing networks, they can really mobilize quickly when there is an, an event that, um, you know, usually is so gruesome that people can't really, uh, you know, they can't, um, they, 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 they really can't tolerate it. Um, and we all know that violence happens all the time and police detention on the streets and dark corners, you know, outside of the gaze of cameras, smartphones, but there has to be some kind of compelling visual communication. And there's, you know, um, in Georgia, for instance, in 2012, it was a prison with juveniles um, uh, where teenagers were sodomized and uh, there, were, there was video footage of that. And that was just uh, for uh, residents of Tbilisi, the capital city, that was just uh, beyond what they can tolerate. And that's how they, mostly young people also uh, convened in protests. Same with uh, Ukraine, 
uh, when people saw violence against the first protesters, you know, of student protesters or young, yeah, mostly young people who uh, wanted to to oppose, who opposed um, Yanukovych's decline of uh, closer relations with the European Union. When the when the public saw how the police were brutal was done with the pro- first protesters, they couldn't tolerate it, and they came out in, in their support. Um, and I think um, I think you know for every country there is a different threshold of what constitutes uh, violence, uh, but it typically you know it's typically in former Soviet space it's typically some kind of urban outbreak of police violence and clear communication and compelling images that really, um, you know, sends lightning rods across um, urban public and compels people to um, voice their concerns or outrage. And I'm hoping now that, um, so yeah, thank you for the answer. And um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about kind of the visibility of, of kind of police reaction to protesters, especially as we see that the last few weeks in, and even the last few months have been uh, pretty dynamic in terms of popular protests in post-Soviet spaces. So we have uh, the events that were happening in Belarus, and then, um, you know, it's October 22nd, so we can talk about the very recent events happening in Kyrgyzstan with um, Soren Bayaj and Bekovs resigning uh, from from the government, and then uh, Chaparov is, is now acting president. And um, even if we look back a little bit further, like um, we saw when when they changed um, when they changed the name of the capital in Kazakhstan to, mm-hmm. to after mm-hmm. Nazarbayev, there were mass protests, and and those were met with mass arrests. So I'm curious if you, I'm sure you follow some of these events, um, but I'm curious if you if you've been kind of watching how the police respond to these protests and whether or not. We can see any um, building movement in any of these places to um, kind of put a check on, on police, the the police's use of violence, and um, whether or not there have been calls again for reform, or if these are kind of actions that are more focused on on concrete political goals at the national level. Yeah, so you're right that every time we see um, a protest in former Soviet space. Uh, we see uh, the state react. Uh, states react with um, police police brutality. And the, by the way, tactics of police brutality vary, like from instance, for instance, from targeted arrests of people, like on the streets of Nur Sultan, you know, the, 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 just as you mentioned, the capital of Kazakhstan, or in uh, Russian cities. Um, and then there is a, there is a different tactic used by Lukashenko, who just um, you know, deploys militarized police units, especially units to just round up people, hit them uh, with batons and all that. And I'm always puzzled uh, with uh, autocrats, especially why do they deploy the police? Because every time they use violence uh, against peaceful protesters, they are just expanding the number of people in the public who support those uh, peaceful protests. and this happens again and again, and I think they they think uh, the autocrats think that um, they will just uh, be able to scare the public um, and uh, continue as usual. But we've seen in Belarus now for third months, 
I think entering fourth month soon, how um, it doesn't work and the protests, protests persist. And I know that once Lukashenko's regime falls, and it will at some point, sooner or later it will, one of the first calls for reform would be the reform of the police so that next time there is a public protest like this, that the police are not as brutal and not as politicized. Um, in Kyrgyzstan, the whole turmoil uh, was, uh, you know, was the political factions fighting and then finally uh, President uh, Jindekov resigning. It also was sparked by Jindekov deploying police force with tear gas and rubber bullets against peaceful protesters um, the day after controversial elections. And it didn't scare people off. It just outraged everyone. Um, in Bishkek and beyond, and it also created uh, this climate of lawlessness where uh, various political factions used the moment and freed their members from, from prison, including um, the current acting president, Japarov, who is a convicted kidnapper, um, who was freed from prison and just used Supreme Court to rubber stamp his release. Uh, the legality of his release from prison, and now he is the uh, acting president. So yeah, um, this seems to be police brutality, seems to be the first um, method that any former Soviet autocrat has in mind when uh, seeing crowds convening um, in capital city usually, but rarely does that really achieve the goals they want, it, it wants to achieve, they want to achieve. And actually, it seems to to continue the protests or kind of delegitimize um, the the sitting president or the sitting politician, whoever that politician is at the time, um, making these decisions kind of in the eyes of protesters, but also kind of turn people who might not have been previously opposed to the state. Is that right? Yep, absolutely. That's absolutely right. Um, well, Erica. Um, so thank you for a very enlightening conversation. Um, I think what's really interesting about your work, if I can just say so, is that it seems to be increasingly applicable. I mean, you've written this book two years ago, um, but but it's telling us a lot about what's happening in this current moment, whether we look in the United States or, as you say, in Nigeria, but especially in um, post-Soviet countries. I'm just curious, are there any kind of concluding thoughts you'd like to leave us with, any um, bits of wisdom um, about about future of politics in Kyrgyzstan or in Central Asian spaces or in the United States, if you care, um, before we end our interview. Mm -hmm. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for uh, producing this series of podcasts. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you, and uh, you really ask interesting questions. Um, I just want to um, I just want to remind. Um, everyone um, in the scholarly community, but also just uh, anyone who listens, that um, police are really what we as society make out of it. And they really reflect how active we are against uh, state repressive um, instruments or how passive we are. Are we able to accept it? Or are we going to push back by organizing, by um, demanding that everyone in the society is treated equally and the police are checked by the society? Police are policed by the society. 
So uh, the more passive we are, the more there will be uh, violence and aggression because um, it's the easiest way for any state to operate. Um, but the more active we are, the more there will be uh, hopefully a dialogue and reflection of what we really as a public see the most appropriate way of, uh, of, of for the police to play a role in our everyday lives. And I think that's a perfect place to uh, end our interview. So I want to thank you again for uh, coming on the show. Thank you.